Hello, welcome to episode 32 of the uh, Defense Against the Dark Arts. I'm Paul Mill, and this episode is on the pamphlet, the political pamphlet, The Communist Manifesto. So just because we cannot imagine a negative consequence to something does not mean that there will not be one. Alarmingly, this flaw of thought has become more common today. Not fully tested drugs being used, not fully thought out policies being implemented, and of course, Marxists. Anyone today who calls themselves a Marxist is either an idiot who has not read the Communist Manifesto, or an idiot who didn't think critically when they did read it. Either way, they are an idiot. And this is why Marxism is a litmus test for idiocy. To give an example, uh, or an example, give a, an executive summary of the Communist Manifesto. Its authors, uh, Karl Marx and Fred Engels, were irrational, delusional, and disconnected from reality. They break the world up into two groups, the oppressor and the oppressed. Right away we can see that this is an oversimplification of the world and plain wrong. The oppressor group they call the bourgeoisie, who they define in different ways, but mostly as wealthy industrialists, what we today call the 1%. But just being in the working class is not sufficient to make one a proletariat. The proletariat are a national level of revolutionaries, which is differentiated by Karl and Fred from communists who are globalist revolutionaries. So there you go. They define the proletariat as national level revolutionaries who are working class and communists are global uh, globalist revolutionaries who are the working class. Right away, we see that there are many different people who do not fit into their simplistic worldview. The working class who are not revolutionaries, for example, and later on we'll see many other groups. It becomes self-evident that the generalizations are wrong. When you listen to a, a liar long enough, you hear inconsistencies. And this pamphlet, though small, is full of them. Carl and Fred claim the communists support every revolutionary moment movement <laughs> against the existing social and political order of things. So let me say that again. Fred and Carl claim communists support every revolutionary movement against the existing social and political order of things. Then they claim constant revolutionizing of production, uninterrupted disturbance of all social conditions, everlasting uncertainty and, and, and uh, agitation distinguish their enemy, the bourgeois epic, from all others. So Carl and Fred are fighting against what they support. <laughs> this is over and over again. They, they, they want constant disruption, and yet they're arguing against the bourgeois because what are they doing? Constant disruption. <laughs> so they are, uh, they, they are against what they support. They define the proletariat as the revolutionary working class. They define them by their place as workers, not by their thoughts, not by their beliefs, not by their ideas, 
but by their position as workers. Then they say that because they are workers, they are appendages to the machine. Well, duh, if you define yourself or a class as workers, then yeah, you idiots, right? That's, you divide it that way. So Carl and Fred show their true values of how they feel about other people by calling uh, those cast off by the revolution of advancements in the workplace as the passively rotting mass of social scum. <laughs> yeah, they're not indifferent, right? They These guys apparently don't like people who've been cast off, right? So if you're no longer, if you're working class, but you're no longer working and you're no longer revolutionary, you are no longer proletariat. Hearing that, just imagine what these guys would think of their workers if they owned a business. <laughs> Shit. You think the bourgeois are bad? Wow. Imagine these two guys as your boss, right? You passively rotting mass of social scum. You will not get time off, right? Uh, they define the communists' uh, aim as to overthrow the current system and a conquest of political power and the abolition of private property, the abolition of freedom, the abolition of free trade, of, of the abolition of buying and selling what you want from whom you wish, the abolition of culture, the abolition of family, denouncing laws of nature and denouncing reason, to rupture morality as well as religion, political science, and law, clarifying that communism's development involves the most radical rupture with traditional ideas. This sounds way over the top because it is way over the top. You know, you could read, it's a little pamphlet. It's like, whatever, 100 pages. Let me see here. Let me, this copy, it's 100 pages. It's only like 50. Uh, this one's got 55 pages. So, you can read it in, in a morning, evening, whatever. Sit down, plow through it. You might puke in your mouth a couple of times, but anyways, or not. Just listen to this podcast. But I don't encourage people to not explore things. I, explore, I encourage people to explore. Right? Anyways, Carl and Fred refer to uh, communism as a specter and that old Europe have entered into a holy alliance to exercise this specter. Communists are all about the power structure. Carl and Fred cry about how those in power and opposition smear each other with the overtly derogatory term communist. Because, right, they're clearly upset at how the word communism was being used as an insult. And the implied purpose of that is to defame the concept of communism. It's possible that what these politicians were doing in the halls of power, we're, we're doing that. But it's more likely that the scummy political types follow the zeitgeist of, the, of public sentiment. And we can presume that the general population saw communism for what it truly is, and hence the insult. Otherwise, politicians would not be throwing it around if the people didn't also agree. Well, today, it's a different story. In a deluded fashion, Carl and Fred then claim that the powers that be recognize communism as a power. Ooh, it's a power to be reckoned with. That's why it's thrown around as an insult. So which is it? 
Is it perceived as an insult or is it an actual power? Right. Followed by the, the opposite, once again, calling for communists to come out of their shadows and openly claim their views, aims, and tendencies and expose their fringe ideas. <clears throat> so now the communists are these rats hiding in the shadows, according to Fred and Carl. Uh, you know, I think these guys should come out and expose their ideas so we can see who the followers are and what they truly think. Censorship is horrible, I think. Even these crazy communists should be espousing their ideas so we can all see and, wow, right, know who and what these people truly are. So this is a, uh, a delusion as there were there are no masses of communists hiding in the shadows. I think it was just a, a fringe group of weirdos. They uh, continue with unfounded assertions and frame all societies as class struggles. Apparently, the concept of mutual benefit does not exist in the minds of these close-minded communists, which is not surprising, as the far left is by definition close-minded and see the world through overly simplistic ways. Now, we all see the world in an overly simplified way, the difference being that some of us recognize that and some do not. There's too much information for, for us to know all the interconnectedness of, of so many things. So we use heuristics to make as much sense of things as we can with the time we allocate to them. But the problem with many is that we don't believe that we can be wrong, that our first assumptions, our first interpretations are fact. And then we delude ourselves by ignoring data that conflicts with our assumptions and only give weight that to uh, that which reinforces our bias. We don't all do this to the same extent. So don't think that you're deeply flawed and that you're incapable of figuring out things and only the fringe special interest groups, you know, somehow have more knowledge than the rest of us. They do not. Read this pamphlet and you will see. Holy cow. Right? Having said that, of course, everyone has a unique schemata and knows things others don't. That's like an uh, analogy would be like a bag of marbles. Each of us has our own... Uh, bag, right? The, the, some are bigger, some are smaller, but they're all different, right? Not all marbles and not, and not all the marbles inside are true. Some are black marbles that are wrong and some are white marbles that are right and some are gray that are not totally correct. So a small bag of white, mostly white marbles is better than a large bag with mostly black marbles. Without being self-critical about our thinking, we have no idea what, uh, shade on the gradient our marbles are and uh, when we get together in a mob we have no chance of knowing where in the spectrum our, our collective mob marble is right recognizing well i shouldn't say that um you can if you're aware of, of mass hysteria and of mob reaction you can pull back in the middle of a mob and people are chanting, well, hold on a sec, whoa, 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 right? And a lot of people do this. There's times when it gets too carried away and all of a sudden you're snapped out of it and you're like, wow, this is, right? Maybe we should stop burning these witches. And uh, and that usually happens when you yeah, get control of yourself and don't allow your emotions to over <laughs> overrun your, your reasoning. So recognizing our biases is only one aspect and those who work on them may have less bias or they may go too far 
and they may even create a worse bias on the other extreme. Confirmation bias is a great example. If someone thinks they cannot use evidence that verifies their hypothesis because they're worried about confirmation bias, and then they only use evidence that disqualifies their hypothesis, they may use invalid evidence only because it contradicts their hypothesis, while ignoring valid evidence that supports it. We need to temper our judgments, which is something people like Carl and Fred do not do. They feed the monster. They become delusional in their assumptions. Carl and Fred dehumanize the individual and disregard them by assigning them to classes, which are oversimplified generalizations. No longer is the individual sovereign and have values, views, and volition. We are clumped into a monolithic stereotype, a collective same based on class or some group that someone else determines that we should be in. They, they simplify humans further by claiming that there are only two types of people, the oppressor and the oppressed. This is so blatantly ridiculous. But simpletons and closed-minded idiots who are incapable of grasping that the world is vastly more complex buy this and hold on to it because it's something that they can understand, as if understanding an idea in any way makes it true. This is clearly a fallacy, but we are all susceptible to lazy thinking like, like this that, that expedites our opinions on a subject, when deep down, at least at first, we, we know that we're just grasping at straws. It's just, hmm, this I could be this, right? Well, maybe they don't think that. Maybe they're just like, it is this, right? Some people that have been doing that since you know young ages that are never being critical, they don't even realize that they're not being critical. It's spooky how we compartmentalize our delusions and beliefs. A, a good example would be the concept of symbiosis. Uh, I think that concept might have came a uh, few decades, perhaps, with biology, right, uh, after... Carl and Fred wrote their book. I think symbiosis came around the 17, 17, the 1870s, and uh, they wrote this around 1850, right, 1848 or something like that. So I've spoken today uh, with people who understand the concept of symbiosis. They know it means a close and long-term relationship that can be mutualistic. That is, both species can benefit. It can also be, what's the word, uh, commensalistic, where one benefits and the other one is not affected either positively or negatively. And then there's, of course, parasitic, where one benefits at the other's expense. But the Marxists have an impossible time using the concept symbiosis with human relations beyond parasitism, 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 as the communist is a nihilistic moron who only believes in a parasitic view of the world. How can they have their utopia if there is only oppressor and oppressed? In reality, their utopia is a self-fulfilling prophecy, but is a dystopia of oppressor and oppressed. A prophecy. The word prophecy spelled with C is a noun, and when you spell it with an S, it becomes a verb, which is pronounced prophesy. I will prophesy a prophecy. Weird. All right, tangent. Um, in some fully, uh, if if some fully comprehended the concept of mutual benefit, they would not be communists. But they have a dissonant view 
that at the end of their aims is a world without parasitism, but their own narrow concept of oppressor and oppressed as the sole relationship between people will and has manifest itself whenever a society takes up communism. Somehow they believe their utopia in their mind can exist. It can be mutualistic, yet are incapable of seeing that the concept uh, in reality, in action. So it's kind of funny. It's a, a, a dissonance there where they, they seem to grasp the concept, right? but then not at the same time because they're not being rational. It's, it's, when, it's a difficult thing to try to make sense of somebody who's being irrational because they're not following reason. Right, so it's it's a futile venture. Carl and Fred uh, claim that all societies fight and end with reconstitution or a ruin of all contenders. This is yet again an assertion that is oversimplified. It's an oversimplified either or fallacy. There is a natural selection of ideas, but we're living in a complex system where those ideas have to survive in this sea of disinformation and misdirections. So the idea that survives may not be the best idea. Or maybe it is, but we don't see the bigger picture and we should trust a natural selection. Or maybe not, <laughs> right? Maybe we're, we're doomed, maybe we're on our way out, right? An organism may evolve to be the best fit for its environment, like the dinosaurs in their static environment. I'm sure it was dynamic, but not so much, right? Um, slowly dynamic maybe things are changing um, well things obviously change but at a very slow pace because they are around for like hundreds of millions of years but if that environment is uh more dynamic or at a rate faster than what it was for the dinosaurs constantly changing the creatures must evolve as quick as the conditions change and there will be a lag between the best fit now and what currently exists so in terms of ideas there is no room for the closed-minded who find something that fits and then hold on to it. That is the path of destruction for the individual, unless they are being artificially propped up by something external. So in terms of natural selection of ideas, it's, uh, it's like surfing. If we find a great line and, uh, or an angle to ride the wave, you know, but the coral reef is coming, right? <laughs> And, and, you know, but the, the fool surfer is like, well, man, I found my truth. This is the perfect line on this wave. And they ride it to oblivion instead of adapting, you know, and, and turning. Right? That would have been the perfect line, but there was something that came up, a reef, right? You got to turn. <clears throat> Sometimes there's, there's no winning option. So we have to jump off the board and, and avoid a bad wipeout, right? So that's just, maybe my metaphors are getting a little too <laughs> far, far off here. I don't know. So, uh, but this is why dogma is not good. Close-minded, overgeneralized, static truths that will not change despite new evidence and new situations, like change. Uh, this, this is our caustic friend delusion, 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 showing its ugly head once again. Fred and Carl should be smart enough to realize that classes are oversimplified stereotypes, but they were rage writing. You know, Carl got... You know, he couldn't get a raise at his job, so he quit. And, you know, they, they couldn't have really took this pamphlet seriously. And nobody at the time did. Maybe the, uh, they made the, the, the suppressed claim that subordinates are a bad thing. 
that there was no room for guild masters and journeymen, for teachers and students, for writer and readers, as they are competing classes, because there is what? Only oppressor and oppressed, according to the communists. This is just ridiculous. These, these views are so idiotic that they are the definition of the far left. We have many enlightened academics, I would argue the majority, who are stupid enough to believe this crap. Do they honestly believe that the barber is oppressing their clients by accepting money like a capitalist for cutting someone's hair who voluntarily walks into their shop, sits down, and asks for their hair to be cut for a pre-agreed-upon price? The defense against this is, is simply learning about and, and trying to use critical thinking as much as possible. And it's sad that we humans need a defense against such obvious stupidity, but there it is, and here we are. There's a, a recurring flaw in Carl and Fred's thinking, and it can be summed up as the either-or fallacy. They reduce a lot of things to that and, and then base their wrong assumptions based on their fallacious thinking. Even then, they're still not consistent with it because they're not rational. <laughs> they group everyone into the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, but later recognize different classes, such as the peasant scum who do not even own land, <laughs> and the bourgeois socialists who pretend to be socialists in name only, but are really the deceptive bourgeoisie in sheep's clothing. Fred and Carl also conflate, then differentiate, the aristocracy types from the industrialists. So they're all over the place. Their definitions are just changing at whim. And this is something we see today when people on the in the far left or the Marxists don't follow definitions. They don't even follow their own definitions. They redefine things and they don't follow their definitions of what they did define them as because they are against reason. There are, of course, some sprinkles of truth, like an all valid valid and all uh what's the word i'm looking for and all propaganda that works on people there there has to be sprinkles of truth like there are obviously powerful people who use all means possible to extract wealth and oppress anyone that they can but would be wrong to generalize an entire class of people as that we could list each sociopath psychopathic or sadistic CEO into a list and then call that a class. But to generalize all industrialists by default is erroneous. It's a, they're making assumptions, right? The assertions based uh, on nothing. Carl and Fred have a difficult time recognizing nuance and complexity in the real world, in objective reality, which they may not even think exists right? Because some people, the subjective truth, my truth, right? Does Karl Marx, uh, you know, does calling him a halfwit, does that help anything? Am I doing anything beneficial by calling Karl Marx a halfwit? Well, yes, it, it, it feels good. <laughs> it feels right to call out that evil piece of shit for the imbecile that he truly was. And we should call out academics today, who subscribe to an ideology that was fabricated by such an imbecile. And what does this say about our modern academics? That they're compromised. 
They do not follow critical thinking. While I may not be uh, achieving the highest standards of rigor with my decomposition of the pamphlet, I am more rigorous than the Communist Manifesto warrants considering my cost-benefit analysis of actually doing this podcast. So there's, there's, there's that. But I think I've, I've, I'm doing it uh, sufficient uh, justice. Carl and Fred represented the, uh, the changes occurring in a, uh, in a globalized uh, industry, an, a world that was becoming more globalized. They were pining for the sentimental old days. They did not like any of the benefits of globalization, yet they were staunch globalists. Carl and Fred were very much in support of centralization, which is the certain path to ruin. They hated nationalism with its diverse peoples and diverse economies. They, they were bent on a one-world government that destroyed all sovereign values and varied perspectives of the world. This communism is truly an ideological cancer of oppression and suffering. That being said, I agree that there are issues with the aristocracy, religions, and ruling class of billionaires who may be psychopaths, or worse. There's, uh, you know, the difference is I know the, the cookie-cutter oppression of communism is not a solution in any way and will only make matters worse. There's a lot of dehumanizing going on in this pamphlet. They don't refer to the bourgeoisie as they. Carl and, Carl and uh, Fred refer to them as it. This is indicating psychopathy, right? They have a, uh, a bizarre schizophrenic view on the bourgeoisie. They hate it, but lust after it like weaklings who never had power. You know, as I said, the it, just for, you know, the emphasis of how, it's like reading that book, pamphlet, sorry. So I'm going to read a quote here. It has drowned the most heavenly ecstasies of religious fervor, of chivalrous enthusiasm, of Philistine sentimentalism in the icy water of egotistical calculation. Now there they're referring to the bourgeoisie so what they hate about the bourgeoisie is what communism promises to bring it is schizophrenic they write about how they hate freedom the unconscionable freedom of free trade they reduce everything to exploitation because they are too ignorant to recognize the concepts of mutual benefit all they know is parasitism and that is what they promised to bring. They crap on free trade with concepts such as naked, shameless, direct, and brutal. One really begins to get the idea that Marx was not a confident person and projected his failings onto his antagonists, real or imagined. He uses the naked shame, direct, brutal. So shame is, is unpleasant a self-conscious emotion, negative evaluation of the self, withdrawal of motivations, feeling unsure, mistrust, powerless, worthlessness, right? That's shame. And he uses the word naked, which is exposed, transparent, obvious, right? And direct, which is unambiguous and clear. So 
that, that's a that's a failing, right? And then he finishes off with brutal, which is you know savagely violent. This is a window into the mind of Carl and Fred, two creepy lurker losers. Carl and Fred claim that the one percent are hiding their motives. They're they're veiled by religious and political illusions. I agree. There there may be some that are, of course, but probably not all. Carl and Fred finished off this list with brutal. And they're right. There are psychopathic corporate leaders who are savagely brutal. A sprinkle of truth on their pile of communist turd. They write the bourgeoisie or corporate leaders have stripped of its whole every occupation hitherto honored and looked upon with reverent awe. The, phys- uh, the, the physicist, the physician, the lawyer, the priest, the poet, the man of science into its paid wage labors. Now, think about that for a second. So the suppressed claim here is that paid wage labors is something to be looked down upon because here he's crapping on the bourgeoisie for stripping the the honored and look up, looked upon uh, you know occupations with reverend awe as paid wage laborers so with this uh, you know isn't this the antithesis of the the communist mantra of the the working class hero crap <laughs> And that Fred and Carl looked upon those occupations with honor and reverent awe. So they placed these occupations in a hierarchy with laborers or the working class at the bottom rung. Then they write that it has torn the family from its sentimental veil and reduced the family relation to a mere money relation. Suppressed claim that Carl and Fred believe in the sentimental family unit, the opposite of Marxism and what they claim, because they do not want the family unit. They do address the state of constant change with, again, a schizophrenic love-hate deal, where they recognize the changing but hate it, but also want to implement change. All fixed, fast-frozen... Here, I'll read this... All fixed, fast-frozen relations with their train of ancient and venerable prejudices and opinions are swept away. All new ones become antiquated before they can ossify. (laughs) I like that. I agree with that quote in terms of uh, it describes the concept of the natural selection of ideas in a dynamic and changing world. New ideas become antiquated before they can ossify. That is a generalization. It is not true. Some ideas do become antiquated before they can ossify, that are changing, right? But not everything is changing. So Carl and Fred do sound like they are resistant to change while preaching for it. They are at times even pro-religion. All that is holy is profaned, and man is at last compelled to face his real conditions of life and his relations with his kind. And then they go into more about globalism, the bourgeoisie need for constantly expanding market for its products have created globalism. It must nestle everywhere, settle everywhere, establish connection everywhere. Now they're referring to the bourgeoisie globalism, which they hate and which they love. (laughs) It exploits the global market, creating a cosmopolitan character 
to production and consumption in every country. Yes, they're absolutely right about that. Those of us who've traveled around the world will confirm that most big cities, despite vastly different cultures, have this similar globalist feel. I mean, you can go to Pizza Hut around the world. You can go to McDonald's around the world. You can go to these and this, but that's not just it. There's also the the whole structure of the big cities, the uniform, right? So they preach for radical change, yet cry about the death of old industries. The uh, the old wants satisfied by the productions of the country are uh, replaced by new wants requiring for their satisfaction the products of distant lands. They're just describing industrial globalism. You know, the cheapest labor markets, the cheapest supplier, no environmental constraints, no human rights. It's a natural selection of industry based solely on cash flow. In place of natural self-sufficiency, universal interdependence of nations. Again, they're just describing globalism. They talk about how globalism changes intellectual production. From numerous national and local literatures, there arises a world literature. This is just an assertion about the reality of globalism, the destruction of national perspectives and the diverse views of different peoples, uh, which we should, of course, fight against. The sovereignty and diversity of nations and their outlooks and values are a natural selection protection against global oppression. National diversity is something the globalists rise and rail against today in the globalist political establishment. They use the word, uh, the word nationalist as if it's a bad thing. The same goes with Carl and Fred. They too hate nationalism, despite their waxing sentimentalism and lamenting its destruction by the globalist bourgeoisie. Fred and Carl want to be the ones destroying the nations. They talk about how even the barbarians are being drawn into globalist civilization. Notice the word there, right? The, the cheap prices of its commodities are the heavy artillery. It forces all nations on pain of extinction to adopt the bourgeois mode of production. The part here that Carl and Fred are missing is that once a nation adopts globalism, it is on the path to extinction by definition. Carl and Fred write about the semantics of the words being used by the globalists, yet refer to civilization as the process of accepting it. So they're using, they are playing along. They're using the words, right? They're calling globalization, uh, the bourgeoisie globalization, a civilization. Right? Civilization sounding like a popular or, or a beneficial thing, right? But I guess it depends on how you define it. <clears throat> So globalism has doomed the majority of the world to the cramped, diseased-ridden, unnatural confines of the idiocy of urban life. Carl and Fred claim that the rural community is dependent on the towns and cities, which is ridiculous. The hierarchy of priorities puts food high up on the list, so the opposite is true. It's the cities that are dependent on the rural communities, the farmers. They claim the, uh, the East is dependent on the West, but earlier claimed interdependence. So they are self-contradictory or they're lying by omission. Take your pick. They mention uh, another truth, 
where the, the 1% have concentrated populations, ownership of property, and means of production into fewer hands, resulting in political centralization. They're correct. That's what's going on, and that is wrong. That's the problem. Centralizing interests, laws, governments, and taxation. Yes, that's, that's what's happening, and it's wrong. The centralization of power is a bad thing that Carl and Fred recognize, but they want that centralized power to dictate what everyone else must do and think. Carl and Fred understand that free competition is allowing the advancements of production, but fail to recognize they are advancements because they are more efficient means of production, which is why the price of products are cheaper and the free competition is allowing natural selection to determine who's got the best idea for that business. These generalizations fall apart on a global scale when we take other factors into consideration, like the, the psychopathy of corporations regarding human rights, environmental destruction, and the intentional malfeasance with designed obsolescence, right? And the end-of-life counters for printers, the political intervention of judicial, judicial systems, bribery of government officials, police and journalists, regulatory capture, silencing of dissidents with murder, working with organized crime, lobbying to change laws that hurt people but benefit the 1%, infiltration into academia, and so much more. I like the, the prop uh, propagandistic analogy they make comparing the modern means of project production, production conjured up by society uh, to the sorcerer who's no longer able to control the powers of the netherworld, whom, whom he has called up by his spells. Again, this suppressed claim is that all those people who are participating in industry at the executive level are a conscious monolith. They are the same, right? The same values, the same beliefs, who are playing with dangerous things they do not fully understand. Yet somehow these two losers know more about the forces at play than those who are actively working with them. <laughs> armchair quarterbacks. Right? These guys are armchair quarterbacks who would have even less of a clue of the forces at play. So why the hell would we be listening to these two losers? And that this conjuring implies the modes of production are from hell itself. If this is the case, then the process of natural selection is also from hell, because that is the process that these businesses are subjected to. Carl and Fred go off the deep end by talking about insufficient sales as too much subsistence. They say that. This is insane. Subsistence means to support oneself at a minimum level. These two morons think that there is too much of that literally claiming that there is too much of just enough. <laughs> right? I used to have a boat called Just Enough Hot because it was funny because it sounds retarded. And these morons are that in life. Right? They mention uh, when the efficiencies of production are too high that the productive forces must be destroyed. We don't have to destroy plants. We can ease our production until the balance of supply and demand are met. Carl and Fred's interpretations are not impartial, to say the least. Globalism does have a lot of major problems, and I am totally against globalism. But there are benefits that is or you cannot get around. If one area of the planet is the sole source of some product, and there's a disaster that hits that area, then the entire world production uh, 
for that product is is affected. With information technology, we would be reckless to have a zero error correction. We need redundant services for critical infrastructure. Globalist division of production is a major fly in the ointment. Right? We need to have diverse production facilities in case one gets attacked, right? Because it's just like a farmer, right? If you if you grow one type of potato and there's a blight, and then you're gonna have a potato blight, and you're not gonna have any potatoes. But if you have like 15 different types of potatoes, that blight may only affect you know 10%, and then you're still gonna have 90% of your crop. This is old knowledge. This is nothing new, right? Carl and Fred also got it wrong when they claimed that the working class would be in greater demand as capital growth, which is not the case. You know, today we're pumping out cheap humans and at the same time automating as many processes as possible, creating more displaced surplus people. Since human labor is exposed to the vicissitudes of the market and the market no longer has demand for them, they are tossed away as surplus population. So Marx was 100% wrong. You know, his passively rotting mass of social scum... <laughs> this this market includes tradespeople, small manufacturers, shopkeepers. It's interesting how how Fred and Carl distinguish themselves from the conservatives, as they they define conservatives are the ones who fight for survival, whereas they revolutionaries fight for what was despite their their current situation. So according to Marx's manifesto. The only difference between a conservative and a Marxist revolutionary, according to Marx himself, is that while both the conservative and the Marxist fight for what was, the Marxist will continue to fight regardless of its current situation, whereas only the conservative fights while their survival depends on it. So according to Marx here, it is not a fight for an imagined utopia, it's a fight for what was but earlier contradicts himself by claiming the opposite. So you could just look through this thing and find quotes that'll say anything you want. I do like how Fred and Carl address the dangerous class, the social scum, that passively rotting mass thrown off by the, the lowest layer of old society may here and there be swept into the movement by a proletarian revolution. It, you know, note it's. So it's, it's, they're still dehumanizing these people. Its conditions of life prepare it more for the part of a bribe tool of revolutionary intrigue. So they're referring to this mass of social scum as just temporary useful idiots for their their uh, rebellion, the revolution, whatever you want to call it. So <laughs> there's a lot of people, idiot kids at universities today who are this, right? They're, they're useful idiots that the actual communists hate. Carl and Fred have Duddy Kravitz's obsession with property ownership and, and crap on those poor schmucks who don't have property as social scum. Yet Carl and Fred fight for the proletariat to have no property. So they're fighting for the proletariat to become what they define as social scum. They write the proletariat has no property. Diminished family values. Industry has uh, stripped him of national identity. A worker in England is the same as in France, USA, and Germany. So here it sounds like Fred and Carl are nationalists. They are upset over the proletariat being stripped of his national identity by the globalist 
with nations being defined as a group of people with shared values and morals which determine their laws, and those values and morals are now dictated by a globalist entity, then yes, this is one of the methods of destroying nationhood. Now they start into the proletarians and the communists. We start to see more of the psychopathy of Fred and Carl. It, it, it does actually get worse. <laughs> the the self-aggrandized communist, they, what's the word? They self-aggrandize communism with their propagandistic false assertions that the commies are the most advanced and resolute section of the working class because that's how they define it, right? So it's garbage. If they were advanced, they would not be the working class. Like the idiots uh, and deluded Trotskys, uh, Fred and Carl claim they are smarter and better than everyone else and give zero evidence to back up their claims. Like many other egocentric, deluded idiots, they think that they are the hardest working, so typical of egocentric narcissists. Narcissists. They write how the commies are reproached with the desire of abolishing the right of personally acquired property as the fruit of man's own labor, hard-won, self-acquired, self-earned property. That the personal appropriation of products sufficient for the maintenance of reproduction is okay, but no more than that. They don't want individuals to earn enough money to pay someone else to do something. Carl and Fred don't want the working poor at the behest of the 1%. They want the working poor and no 1%. Now for some scary stuff. They claim in a communist society the present dominates the past. Let that sink in for a bit. They go on to write, in a bourgeois society, capital is independent and has individuality, while the living person is dependent and has no individuality, which is the opposite of reality. In a society based on free exchange, the person is independent and has individuality, whereas in a communist state, the person is dependent on the state and part of the collective. By their definition, there is no individuality for the communists. These guys, they have it so backwards. So the risk loss of entrepreneurs is a great efficiency of the free market, not so much for the individual, but for the market. Whereas, well, it can be, if they, if they win, then it's a much is it's great for them, but if they lose, they're losing. So they're, it's the entrepreneurs who are paying the price for our advancement. Whereas without that feedback, centralized communists plans would continue with the the dogs the losers instead of cutting their losses whereas the free market can't afford to the people the mom and pops who start these businesses they're losing money they just can't afford to keep the business so the business will fold it will shutter whereas in the communist centralized control doesn't matter keep pumping it right carl and fred write how the the communists are out to abolish individuality they're out to abolish independence and they're out to abolish freedom it is clear that these guys are screwballs. I'm all for restricting monopolies and limiting the political influence of the 1%, but commies are just insane power grabbers who want to replace the 1% with an evil more replacement, communists. They want to stop free markets and free exchange. Free markets are the engine of development that incorporates human nature and finds the most efficient mode. Dumb 
centralized control uh, has no chance against the decentralized natural selection of best ideas. Only by the inefficient brute force of a centralized control can the natural selection of a more efficient mode of production be squelched. Centralized control means greater economic waste. Just look at China, the world's leader of pollution of every kind. Natural selection created a very efficient mode of production and a couple losers who think they are smarter than everyone else with pipe dreams of centralized control cannot fathom how far in over their heads they are. Communists are against hierarchy, but today they are creating a distorted, bigoted, and racist version of hierarchy with their intersectionalism. I'm all for the cage match of ideas. Throw them in, let them fight a fair fight, and see who's stronger. Communism may just be a natural mutation of concept by natural selection, and it's trying to take on the top cat, which is fair enough. The problem is that things are not that simple. We're living in a complex system with infinite subconvolutes shooting off in all directions. The... the an idea of a, a cage match is great, but when propaganda and manipulation are thrown into the mix, now the truth is fighting with a blindfold on, and its hands are tied behind its back. This is why bad ideas need propaganda and manipulation so badly. If they were great ideas, they would just need the light of exposure. These dirty mind viruses cannot survive that way. The same way how natural selection prunes almost all life that has ever existed, most mutations from natural selection are negative, and this mutation of thought has not brought the utopia it promises in over 150 years. 170? Utopia being a uh, very subjective here, and it's, it's really a hell camouflaged to trick fools but most rational minds can see through the deception. The idea of communism is half-baked. It's just a couple losers sitting in a flat in London writing about their delusional theories. They read a lot of assertions with no premises to back them up. This is obvious to all. They're just feeding the monster, being delusional, and allowing themselves to feed back on their own bullshit. Carl and Fred clearly had issues based around jealousy, and a lust for power to control everyone else. We can presume this most plausibly stemmed from their powerlessness and poverty. If these guys were alive today, they'd be di diagnosed with some serious clinical issues, I'm sure. They talk of globalists with disdain and lust. In one breath, they hiss at the evils of it. and In the next, they say... If you think the bourgeois globalism is bad, wait until you see what the communists have cooking. <laughs> they want to punish and suppress innovators and reward the zombies. Communism is the rise of the zombies. I get that Carl and Fred wanted to stop the 1% from going over the deep end and becoming drunk with power. That's, it's a noble cause, but their jonesing for total power is not a valid solution. They view the working class as incapable of becoming the bourgeoisie. 
And that's because if an individual from the working class does become the bourgeoisie, then they are no longer the working class. So the class itself, by definition, can't become something else because that's how they define it. It's like saying the class of puppies can't become the class of adult dogs because we're talking about the class and not the individuals. <laughs> so we're human, right? Uh, we have an individuality whether we want it or not. We may be thought of as fitting into certain classes at different times, which is dynamic, but in reality, we always remain individuals. It's not to say that our behavior will not change when we're in a mob or a group. That depend, depends. That depends if uh, we've chosen to think critically about the situation or allow our emotions to get the best of us. We choose to coast on autopilot or to be more analytical and take control. The irony is that Carl and Fred are using their individuality to arbitrarily claim that there is none using their individual perspectives to claim that there is no individual perspectives. We can choose to see a situation in many ways, but those are ultimately from our own perspective. It's bizarre how the communists allow someone to do all they can so long as they do not hire others to help. This is so arbitrary and massively limiting. Carl and Fred leave so many suppressed claims that when you read the pamphlet, you catch yourself filling in the gaps of their baseless assertions. You try to make sense of it. I don't know if this is intentional, uh, as it's a known technique of propaganda, or they forced Gump their way into it. They have some interesting claims, like how culture in the free world is a mere training to act as a machine. Culture, right? This is uh, clearly false, as it's a generalization and not all culture is that, but there definitely is some culture, at least today, that is fabricated to condition people to, to think a certain way or believe certain things as background knowledge. Many artists organically are showing, you know, what they think, how they think, what they believe, but that is not training, uh, you know, for the, for the listener, the consumer to act as a machine. But there is some, I agree. Our culture is based on shared values, which determines the laws of our nation. This is a major reason why globalism is wrong. It seeks to suppress some people's cultures and their values and replace them with those of the globalist billionaires or what the globalist billionaires want us to have. It appears that those who have power write the rules but that is not completely accurate. Those who choose to use their power are the ones who write the rules. Those who do not choose to use their power, the zombies, will be the controlled class, despite all their screaming at clouds. Carl and Fred are like the modern woke bigots who argue against logic and reason because being logical and reasonable would show how wrong their ideology is. And that won't taste good to these delusional morons. So instead of admitting that they're wrong, they argue against logic and reason, and therefore wrong does not exist. That is proof of their abandonment of logic and reason, you know, despite them 
despite, uh, I mean, they admit it. So <laughs> I don't know if you need proof. And it's sufficient to dismiss uh, their ideas as idiocy. They argue to abolish the family, which flies in the face of our natural selection and proper development. Carl and Fred call the correlation of parent and child, the family, to be bourgeois claptrap. They actually use the word disgusting. They go off at some tirade about prostitutes and how the bourgeois wives are in reality communal wives. You know, talk about conspiracy theories, right? Maybe in London in 1848, you know, it was a real swinging town. I don't know. But they, they can't refute changes against communism from a, a philosophical or ideological standpoint. So they simply claim it's not worth serious examination. What a political response, right? Obviously, if they could refute it, they would. They know so little about philosophy and critical thinking that they say philosophy is simply deep intuition, which is the exact opposite of reality. The pamphlet was forgotten for many years for a reason. Anyone who read it who has a critical bone in their body would toss it into the garbage and forget about it, which is what we should have done as a species. It's what we did do. The problem is that there are so many non-critical thinkers, the lost, who use it as an analogy, who use it as an ideology to fill a hole in their soul. They're complete idiots who read it and believe it because they allowed themselves to be duped. They want to believe it. I've read stuff that I wanted to believe and, you know, so I just can't do it. You know, the, when there's stuff that's like, ah, you just can't force yourself to, it doesn't matter. But some people can, apparently, you know, or worse, they, they support it without even reading it which is most likely the case. Today, critical thinkers know Marxism to, like I said, to be a litmus test for stupidity. Carl and Fred wrote that they were against the concepts of freedom and justice and that communism abolishes all eternal truths and morality. So for all those Marxist social justice warriors today, you are operating against your Marxist ideology because Marx was against justice. They wrote in order to abolish freedom and justice, they need to remove class antagonisms. The suppressed claim here is that they believe class antagonisms are needed for freedom and justice. They go on to claim communism is the most radical rupture, rupture with traditional ideas. So the idea of freedom and sovereignty is a bad idea simply because it is a traditional idea. This is their logic. But they're using these ideas as the basis of why they want to destroy the bourgeoisie, a, a class that they created out of their imagination. Logical fails abound in this crappy little pamphlet that was rightfully forgotten. I think it was the Russian scumbags who brought it back from the dead because they, they just wanted to have something to use as their guide to make themselves seem more legit. The Maoists did too, right? Everyone who dragged this evil little pamphlet out as a guide turned out to be more evil than what they were fighting against. I'm not a fan of the 1% or the tactics used by some psychopathic globalist corporations, but Marx's abandonment of morality, freedom, justice, and reason is certainly not utopia. In fact, it is a horrible dystopia, a hell 
on earth.